Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hello and welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I'm Clarissa Kennedy, and today we are bringing you a -a one-of-a-kind episode. Molly and I are interviewing the expert. Dr. Vera Tarman, and asking her some of the tough questions we see every day in our clinical interactions with clients to see if she has some insight or best practices to help us help our clients. Today, we dig deep on volume, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, food addiction recovery maintenance. What does that look like? Ultra-processed food addiction. Is that a term she believes in? What are her thoughts on grains and fruit? What are some of the tools or suggestions she might have to help with what some people refer to as, quote unquote, the chronic relapser, a term we don't love and give you maybe some new terminology instead? Eating disorder versus food addiction. What's the difference? And what is the difference between 12 steps, which is peer recovery, and treatment? Since our Vera needs no introduction, we would like to take this opportunity to let you know of a few other ways you can receive support around food addiction. This Thursday, September 15th, we have a 10-day sugar-free challenge starting with Adapt Your Life Academy. The sign-up link is on our website, and we are promoting it on our Sugar-Free for Life I'm Sweet Enough Facebook page. What you get in this challenge is five live interactive sessions with world-renowned experts, Dr. Eric Westman, Dr. Vera Tarman, and sugar addiction counselors, Molly and I. You get 10 days of support in a private Facebook group, food list guidelines, PDF guides, delicious recipes, and our rockstar team to help support you succeed. Oh, by the way, that's free. On top of this, another incredible opportunity that's coming up for community and ongoing support is the three-week course Dr. Vera Tarman is teaching on sugar and food addiction. The next enrollment starts September 26th to October 3rd. The course costs $167 US and the program is made up of two essential components, modules and lessons partnered with an ongoing support group, your own new recovery community led by the three of us. In this course, you will learn why your self-destructive behaviors around food are not your fault, how specific foods are engineered to hijack your brain chemistry the role of hormones and neurotransmitters in creating and perpetuating cravings and urges around food, how wanting and knowing and doing are controlled in the brain and how to make this work to your benefit, the differences between food addiction, various eating disorders, and why this matters for diagnosis and treatment, the different stages of food addiction and how different treatment approaches are best for each, the critical importance of social support, which you will get with this program, how to create your own recovery plan that's realistic, enjoyable, and sustainable. There is hope. 
No matter how far gone you feel, no matter how alone or out of control, you can recover from sugar and food addiction. Please join us. We can't wait to meet you. And without further ado, here is our interview with the star of our show, our co-host, Dr. Vera Tarbin. All right. We have a very special episode for you today. We are featuring expert Dr. Vera Tarman, who you all know very well. And Molly and I thought it would be a good time to talk about what we are seeing clinically. And maybe if, you know, Dr. Tarman could explain some of the neuroscience behind it or some of the hormonal things that may be at work for some of the conditions that we see with those struggling with food addiction recovery. And so I know one of the topics that both Molly and I, both of us experience personally, but also we see with a lot of individuals is when they get off the sugar and flour, they start to use volume. And so we were wondering, Vera, if you had any insight into what could be occurring with these individuals. And then I'll ask you like a few follow-up questions on that following. Yeah, sure. I I think it's a a really useful conversation to have because we are now in the field recognizing that yes, there are foods that are addictive, uh, but we're not really looking yet at sort of behavioral addiction, you know, eating itself. I mean, we we look at it, yes, in the context of eating disorder, but the the idea about, uh, you know, binging and grazing and, you know, as an addiction, as opposed to as an eating disorder is still relatively new. So it's the reason why I like to use the word food addiction rather than processed food addiction or sugar addiction, because I think it actually then incorporates the many ways that we can be addicted to this substance that's that we call food and one of them can be eating and then maybe a part of that or yet a separate entity is volume itself feeling full the concept of feeling full and you know what is that about and i want to say that we don't have research about what that is about but clinically we absolutely know there's something about this phenomena because people are struggling even with eating the healthiest of foods they either want to eat all the time so that they have that constant level of fullness. Maybe they're afraid of being in any way not full or just that feeling, the, the, the sort of concept of feeling full. And that could be on so many levels. And I don't have an answer. The, the short answer to this question is I don't know. But I can say that we have some areas where there's interest in uh, in pursuing. So one of them I think that's worthy of is just, you know, as we talk about addiction itself as a hormonal and a neurochemical imbalance and often an interplay between the two of them, is that also happening here too? So we know with food eating that that ghrelin and leptin, you know, our hunger hormone and our satiety hormone can get derailed and that that can cause overeating um, phenomena. And uh, is there something about that, that desire to not even necessarily feel stretched full, but just full? Like if you have uh, a leptin deficiency, there's no sense of fullness because we need that fullness to uh, get leptin gives us that sense of fullness. Is there an overabundance of ghrelin or something happening there uh, so that we never get that, just that feeling normal full? So yeah, it may look like volume to us, whereas to the person, they're just feeling normal. So is is it that piece? And similarly with the uh, addiction, if the person's dopamine, even when they're eating too much, they still can't regulate. Because, you know, with addiction, what we're trying to do ultimately is 
get and eat, not necessarily to feel euphorically high, but to just not feel bad, you know, not to feel that sense of withdrawal. And maybe that person needs to eat more because their dopamine is so deranged. And typically we see volume addiction in later or, or end stage food addiction. It tends not to be the early stage of food addiction. It tends to be a consequence later. So could it just be the usual addiction, but really, really enhanced? So there's that piece. Then there's other ways to look at it. Okay, what about if it is a feeling of fullness? Is it the actual concept of that feeling of fullness through the stretch receptors? And uh, we know, in fact, I know that the two of you have talked about this in your various uh, talks, that the stretch receptors and that sense of fullness comes um, does trigger uh, the parasympathetic, the vagal response. And so that maybe that person is needing to fill up to get that vagal response. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's essentially our relaxation response. In the same way that I take a deep breath, I, I stimulate through my diaphragm, diaphragmatic breathing, the vagal nerve. Similarly, I might be doing something like that with uh, stretching, uh, eating, and, and getting a sense of relaxation so that it doesn't matter what I'm eating, but I can get a sense of comfort, um, relaxation just by being full. And if a person has anxiety, boy, is that ever a great way to get a quick and a, you know cheap way to get a, a sense of satisfaction. Although, of course, it's at a big cost. So there's um, that piece too. There's also a concept, and I haven't been able to find enough, like more research, but is there actually an opiate-mediated or an endorphin-mediated response to the stretch receptors? Because being full, it's not just about the vagal response. It's also something, it appears with the opiate response. So is there something there so that in the same way by eating a lot, if you sort of hit a, quote, sweet spot of fullness, you might actually be getting a, an endorphin response. Again, this is either rat research or this is just thought experiments, but they're all interesting avenues of inquiry. So those are some ventures into understanding it. And then, you know, what do we do about something like that? Especially if we don't know what to do. All we know clinically is that a person's eating too much and they're trying to achieve either normalcy or a sense of comfort or not even euphoria, usually because you're too full. So then what we often do is uh, encourage those people because they have lost their intuitive sense of now I'm full because fullness requires a, a working leptin grain system. It requires a, a normal system of gauging when you're full. If that switch of on off full, not full is broken, you might have to artificially do something by what we call weighing and measuring food. So again, it's not something you would see early stages of food addiction, but later stages, you might have to institute some behaviors that are ways to curb because you can no longer curb naturally yourself. And so another thing I have noticed in my own recovery, I think Molly mentioned she has found it as too, is that, you know, this was kind of in the interim of first cutting out sugar and flour volume becomes an issue. Is yes. it possible for ghrelin and leptin to re-regulate after a sustained period of abstinence? Because I do find volume is no longer an issue for me for clients that I have the opportunity to work with for over a year, even in the two-year period, volume becomes less of an issue for them. And I'm wondering if there is some healing going on yeah. um, 
that think, can occur. Yeah, I think so. It, it, again, it depends on what the cause of it is. You know, let's say all of the venues that I've suggested are real plausibilities. So if it's because the person's had a hormonal ir- irregularity, then yeah, sure, why not? It can regulate itself. We see insulin re-regulating itself. And as long as the person doesn't reintroduce their their you know their overabundance of sugar, in which case they, they become diabetic or insulin uh, um, resistant again, they develop a sense of insulin sensitivity. So why not leptin sensitivity? Like, in fact, there are leptin sensitive diets out there. I don't know if we call it that anymore. Well, keto is one. Let's just say what it is. So sure, in that case, but if it's a if it's an actual um, substance, uh, pardon me, transfer addiction, I've gone from, I can't get high off the specific foods, I just need that fullness, then I don't know if that would work. So that would explain why one person can self-regulate. And absolutely, this is why I think coaches are so important, because it is a, a not a one-size-fits-all, And but you don't want to be experimenting on your own. Uh, you want somebody who has a clear head and lack of investment. They're, they're not going to get that euphoric punch that you are when you're trying something to uh, give it a try. And then if you see that you're failing, they're there to rein you back in. Like myself, I would not trust myself to self-regulate. But I suspect that that's because there's something about that fullness, like that becomes a transfer addiction in and of itself. But you, Chrissy, you say that you can. So I believe that. I think that's totally possible. So then what do you do if, okay, so if it, if it's the leptin ghrelin avenue, potentially, right? Like you said, it could heal itself and people, it regulates and people move on volume stops being an issue. But what about for those clients of ours that it doesn't, they're weighing and measuring, but it's every day after every meal, it's that constant like sadness or whatever the meals over. I haven't quite scratched that itch you know, what do we do for those folks? I mean, we obviously we come up with all kinds of distraction techniques, all of that, but does that ever go away? Well, could I, I just want to ask the question now, are those clients that you're thinking about still, is, is the door open somewhere for them to still try to get that euphoric buzz that they're no longer getting? Like there's a sense of, if you know, you're just not going to get that particular itch scratched, um, then uh, it's it's easier to let it go. But if there's that constant feeling of like, if there's just something I could do, it, the door stays open and then you can't let it go as it were. I think that there is, I know that you've talked about this, we've talked about this, there is a sense of loss that can never be achieved when there's drugs involved, whether it be food or anything else. There's no way I'm ever going to get the same sense of abandonment that I'll get from having a bottle of wine. It just just won't. Although I will get something else instead, and I can learn to value that instead. But if I keep thinking, is there something else I can do to get that? I'm not going to let it go. So I don't know. Let me ask you that question. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really great question and and it varies from client to client, but you know, sometimes this can show up in people who's, you know, according to them, and I have no reason but to believe them, they're working a pretty strong recovery program. They may or may not be involved in 12 step, but certainly they have some kind of community. They have some kind of accountability partner, or they're sharing their food with me, you know, whomever it might be that they're doing things daily, but that they're still experiencing this phenomenon after each well, meal. are they eating? So let's just ask a bare basic question. Are they eating enough protein, enough fat to that you can say, yes, that food is enough? 
Yeah. I mean, that's the real question, right? Is that we do really emphasize focusing on protein to get enough and that weighing and measuring oftentimes for my clients, I think for Clarissa as well is to make sure that people are getting enough, not even that they're not eating too much. So, I mean, I think that might be where our limitation comes then as clinicians in the, the matter of which we are clinicians we are not nutritionists. We are not dietitians, any of that. And so then, yes, there have been times when I've recommended that people go see somebody to get some of those quantities figured out. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of people want to avoid that route and go with the standard kind of cookie cutter plans that are out there, right? And there are plenty within Facebook groups and internet keto or whatever. And so they they eat three ounces, four ounces of protein. I mean, there are several programs that we know that exist out there, right? Where it's like three ounces of protein because you're a woman per mm-hmm. meal. And I just, I don't know if that's enough. And I guess that's a whole nother conversation to have, but yeah, I think that well, that it, probably does play a part. It may not be enough if you've cut your carbs considerably. And a lot of the keto folks are eating very little carbs. Like I have a very cookie cutter uh, perspective in that I eat four, four ounces of protein a day, but I eat 16 ounces of carbs in a meal and there's no way that I can't not be full. So that then the question is, if I still want something, it's, it, I mean, how much of us, when we have that itch, is it true hunger or is it that false hunger? So I would, first of all, make sure it's not true hunger. And please, let's not use keto as a, as a basis for that, because it may not be enough. Like I'm really quite aware that people are thinking one meal a day or, or two meals. A day. Like it's like, well, if that's the case, are you eating enough? So is it true hunger? And then next question, is it false hunger? And if it is false hunger, in other words, that euphoric desire, is there something that needs to be let go of there? Yeah. And I wonder, I don't know if you see this, Molly, but I find with those volume clients, they seem to do pretty well breakfast, lunch, but it's dinner. Yeah, It's like more of a dinner disease is even what some of my clients call it is their dinner disease. And so does that timing or what they are seeking at that moment, at the end of the day, it Mm -hmm. seems very like drug seeking related, if that makes sense, rather than just ghrelin and leptin being off. Yeah. And then also, are they eating early and then therefore going to bed hungry? And, you know, hunger, I mean, one person, I mean, I'm not the only person I know this, that finds uh, being hungry before I go to bed is a not a happy place. It's going to affect my sleep. It's going to make me really anxious, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, that's why some programs will have what's called a metabolic adjustment. I don't think that's necessary, but it does mean that we have to look at our, our late meal, not our, our dinner meal, maybe with advice like molly i like this idea of you asking the person and and before you start pulling your hair out to say look that is the next step it's just a one-off don't see me one week and see somebody else like you know it's not it's not you have to you have to see that nutritionist forever just get a one-off meal like Teresa wright does stuff like that I, there's people who will do stuff like that yeah Teresa, joy kitty david wiss right yeah, yeah. definitely plenty of people it's yeah. worth it. It's worth it. Listeners, if you're struggling with this, it is worth it. <laughs> so thinking about volume and you know food addiction in general, I find myself talking a lot about post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which I think can also show up with the volumizing piece of it. Because I think I work with clients who have binging, whether it's 
diagnosable binge eating disorder or not. There's certainly a binge component to a lot of, right. What goes on with food addiction, sugar addiction, whatever we want to call it. And so, like I said, I find myself talking a lot about it to clients and we wanted to know what is your take on post-acute withdrawal syndrome? Do you see it with food addiction? I mean, we see it with food addiction, but you're the expert Vera. Like we really want to know, do you see it with food addiction? And if so, what does it look like? You know, when does it show up and what can we do about it? Yes. Well, post-acute withdrawal is like, it's the, it's the one obstacle that it's the reason why people don't want to accept us. They don't want to do our work. They don't want to do it because they're afraid of this. You know, it's that sense of deprivation. You know, people say, oh, you're going to be deprived if you, if I, if I don't have this stuff. I mean, it's fear of that first, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, which are definitely going to be difficult. I, I find it kind of interesting that the people who don't know anything about, not really know that much about, I can't say they don't know anything, they don't know that much about food addiction, but are doing the food addiction plan are the, you know, the keto folks and they call it keto flu, but you know, keto flu is, uh, yes, it's a, it's a withdrawal from all of those processed carbs. So it is actually a kind of withdrawal. So if anybody thinks it doesn't exist, just ask the people who are experiencing keto flu. So my, you know, when we talk about post-acute withdrawal, which is just withdrawal after you stop your substance, cold turkey, you look at it from the point of view of various stages. It's not all just, there's different parts of the body, the brain, uh, emotions that are in withdrawal at their own paces. So the first thing, I guess the most acute phase in my experience is usually anywhere from if you're really lucky and your food addiction is not too entrenched three or four days, this is the stuff like when uh, Dr. Westman says, just stop and you'll feel better after four days. I think, well, at least some people do and they're lucky. And I'm assuming that he's referring to um, uh, the people who are not that strongly food addicted, but they still are getting some kind of feeling of deprivation and some discomfort and craving. And, but, you know, they ride through it and it goes away. But for many of us, it's a good solid 10 days and it can be as long as uh, three weeks. That's just the, the agitation craving, thinking about the food, uh, feeling irritated, maybe you can't sleep, a sensation. And once that's passed, there may still be, especially if you've been um, entrenched with the food addiction for a long time and have started to use food as a coping mechanism, well, now you've got not just the substance that you've stopped, the sugar that you've stopped and the result of that, physical, biological response of that putting that, you know, the neurochemical recalibration and and the leptin ghrelin recalibration that might take up to a month. But you've also got, what do I do with all these emotions? What do I, how do I cope with all of my moods that are now all over the place? And how long does that take? We could call that legitimately withdrawal too. It's because you quit. And that could take, um, I don't know, three months, four months, five months. The neurochemical rebalancing actually takes the initial physical is, I don't know, three weeks, let's say tops three weeks, but the emotional, I think is better to say three months, just like with alcohol. It's very similar to alcohol. And we see with alcohol, things like sleep can take up to a year. So I don't know about food, but I would think uh, our sugar, I think I would think it could take six months. So it depends on what you look at. The overall picture could actually be in a, a question of months, but typically especially when I'm trying to be encouraging to people and saying it doesn't take that long. I say it takes about two or three weeks. That's the worst of it. But the good news is every day after that two or three weeks gets better. So it's not like it's hell for the next six months. It's a little bit better every day. And by the time you're in it for two weeks, it's not going to get worse. It's only going to get better. Just don't, the way you can prolong the agony is by having a little bit on weekends, on a birthday, and you just keep reigniting the uh, craving. 
that's how uh, withdrawal can last forever. And by the way, that is how most of us in society, uh, you know, move our diets on and off. That's how um, we do it. We quit, then we have a little bit, and then we reignite. And so then it just feels like it's always in withdrawal, when in fact, it would be peace. There is peace after withdrawal. (laughs) Yeah, I think about the clients who, right, they kind of start out low because they're going through withdrawal. Then they get into like some, and not all, but some, right? Hit that pink cloud kind of hit, right? And like, oh, why didn't I do this sooner? And this, once I got off, it was so easy. But then for me, the vast majority of my clients, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, I've really defined for a lot of years as more like that three to six month mark Hmm. where like things have been kind of cruising along, but you know, and they're doing okay. But then all of a sudden they're having some of the physical symptoms again and the emotional and psychological symptoms again. And that typically for my clients has been around the three to six months, no matter what substance. Have Molly, you found that? Yeah. You know what? You got to write an article about that. Cause that we, that's a new term. I, that, that's a new, it's not a new phenomenon cause you're just, you're describing it, but in the literature, it's, we shouldn't be calling that post-acute withdrawal. We should be calling that, I don't know, sub, I don't know. What's the term that's intermittent or that that's a little bit later prolonged. Oh, sure. Some protracted term. something. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Protracted withdrawal, like as a phenomena, as a syndrome. I think that that would be, I have not seen anything written about that, but I understand what you're saying. And we need to talk about that. So is that actually false? You know how we talk about true hunger, false hunger. Is that true withdrawal or is that euphoric recall, not having the tools? It's a different phenomena, but it is a real one. So I think that we're stumbling upon because we're finally talking and treating. This is the first time we've done this. You know, like you guys are the pioneers. I guess we all are the pioneers. And uh, Molly, Chrissy, write a paper, start talking about it. Like call it something. You can call it the paint shop syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's very true. It shows up at around whether it's three months or six months where clients are doing everything they've been doing. Everything is fine. All of a sudden I have low motivation. I'm feeling maybe nausea again, feeling some like achy. My food is not interesting anymore. It, It feels like that same original maybe less intense, but just like a prolonged period of low where, you know, that's exactly what I see clinically as well. And I definitely used to see it with alcohol and drugs when I worked in that field. We see see that with drugs as well. Yeah. I actually have not seen any writing about that other than that, you know, it's post with the way that I've been saying it, which is the sort of the the dregs, the residual of post-acute withdrawal, but it is actually its own unique phenomena. And I think it's worth talking about. In fact, I think that that's worthy of a podcast right there, just just to uh, flesh that out more and get other people's opinions about that. Yeah, because I think you're right. And, you know, the first question is, is this, I mean, it could be biological because, you know, dopamine is a, I can create a dopamine response just by anticipating something, you know, gambling or going away or having a a big cake or something like euphoric recall. You can, you can bring back some of that stuff. And if the person is starting to, you know, harbor resentments and, and remembrances of foods, they're actually dipping in conceptually back into the food. And so maybe that would then lead to some kind of withdrawal. It does with gambling. So I think there is, yeah, something. Yeah, because no. it certainly is a high-risk factor, right? It's a high-risk yeah. time for returning to use. And and it starts to feel like, you know, I don't know exactly what it starts to feel like for every one of my clients, but certainly, you know, we call it the efforts. The efforts start showing yeah. up. And, yeah. and it's like, well, if this is how it's going to be, 
Right. And, and certainly yeah, there's a lot of education it. around like, yeah, like anxiety and depression. If that's still showing up, we maybe need to get that checked out. There might actually be something clinically going on there and let's address that. But yeah. And I've also wondered too, like, is it a period of rewiring? Are there new neural pathways, right? Like is something shifting yes. in the brain yes. that's causing, like you said, almost like euphoric recall or like these sparks of something. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, you know, the pink cloud is, is dropped. And so now it's like, well, is this all there is? And this might be where, you know, 12 step program can step in and say, well, you know, we have this concept of service and a higher power and other ways to um, fill in that empty space that a person who's more secular may not have, you know? So, and it is, it is like you said, Chrissy, it's, we see this with alcohol too. It is a common time when people seek out medication. Like, so they go, okay, I'm not going to use that drug. So now I'll use a uh, medication. But, you know, I will say that it, it unfortunately is just a bridge to, we, we have to figure this out because the medications help for a while and then they don't help anymore. So it's, we have to figure it out. Yeah. Cause they're just, again, tools that, yeah. you know, if you were taking on new coping skills and stuff yeah. and then, but then you build tolerance to them and then you need yeah. more and more and more. And so it becomes less effective. And so yeah. you're yeah. right. I think it does definitely have something to do with, okay, now I've kind of lost my passion, which mm. was my addiction, yeah. which was food. And like, yeah. I've gotten over that. I'm done getting the, you know, whoa, life is great. And I have brand new eyes. And and then I'm bored, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm lonely and all those other things. And so that's where you need a more holistic treatment plan to get people involved in things like you said, service, like start getting them, you know, find other ways that are healthier to get dopamine or serotonin or oxytocin outlets. So they're not feeling so low all the time without, and that's just helping them find purpose. Right. Exactly. And so there's two things there in what you said that I want to pick up on. And one is that maybe they're already noticing that they're low because they may be damaged or not ever recalibrated their dopamine back to normal. And so they always will need a little bit of extra just to feel normal. So there may well be that, in which case that may require medication or an extra, extra bit of work, like an extra bit of stuff that Yeah. Like for me, I have to do a certain level of high intensity fitness to just feel good. Yes. Yeah, exactly that. Or the other approach might be that we as addicts are used to uh, engorging ourselves with lots and uh, life actually is not full of lots. And we are uh, programmed as animals to always, this is just part of the nature of us is that we have a little bit more dopamine desire than we have ability to feel satisfied. So we will always be somewhat dissatisfied because that's how we're programmed. Otherwise we just be sitting on our, you know, in the grasses and not bothering to chase after and get our food and whatever it is, you know, uh, we're not going to bother because we're okay. So we have to feel somewhat unsatisfied. So what does that mean? That means uh, here's the higher power stuff. You know, Buddha says one of the first uh, tenets of uh, the philosophy is life is suffering and it's because of attachment. It's, you know, we have craving and attachment and we have to learn to let go of the attachments. And so there you go. You have a, 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 a spiritual practice, which deals with this. We addicts don't like to just be bored. Like you said, and Buddha says, well, you know what? That's life. It's boring much of the time. And we have to learn to, um, but uh, unlike next person beside me who's okay to be bored i don't want to be bored because i'm used to riding my horses as fast as i can and uh, i'm gonna have to you know that sense of expectation learn to it's like a distress tolerance learn to 
have more tolerance to boredom, it's going to be harder for me because we are, the addicts are wired to want the big. Right. And that's why maybe having structure or more planned activities, things to look forward to can help us. And we really need to treat boredom just like, you know, that is relapse prevention is boredom prevention and keeping engaged. Yes. And, And one tool, you probably do this, but it just comes to mind right now is if I'm used to having rewards all the time, I can't have a big reward all the time. It's too much work. And it's, devastating because it's up and down is to build in and start to practice to build in little rewards throughout the day. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, after I speak with you guys, I'm going to have my nice little Nespresso coffee, you know, and, you know, before the end of my day, I'm going to have my special tea that I have only at the end of the day, which actually helps me not want to eat at night because I have this special tea. So if we build in these little things that we're used to, that they're not too big, but I need those more than my partner who's quite sedate and is quite happy to just read and that's it. Yeah. Well, and I guess along those lines, since we're pretty much already talking about this, what does food addiction recovery maintenance look like? Because we don't talk about that often, right? Like we're talking year two to five. What about year five to 10? Like, are there things that we need to be thinking about planning for, for those of us that aren't necessarily at that stage yet? I know when I heard you talking to I think it was Stefan Guionet. You talked about people doing the same meal plan or even for so long. And then they've just, you two were finding that some of them were adding on weight and whether, you know, were they doing something differently or were they doing, you know, how do we kind of navigate those middle years of recovery? Uh, well, so in a way, we started with that by talking about, you know, how the acceptance of life is not flashy all the time and we want flashy and then but we have to have some some kind of sustenance and i do think that it's it's kind of like a relationship if we understand the concept of like like a relationship you know sex and whatever the first couple of years are the in love and it's dopamine and it's thrilling and it's you know dopamine endorphins it's exciting but then you know it, it doesn't last it just very seldom lasts and you know if the person who wants it to last it's because they have to keep introducing new or maybe new relationships let's open it up let's do some you know kinky stuff whatever it's, it's some way to keep that dopamine alive but eventually you want to keep that relationship going and you know molly you can disagree with me here because you're probably the one that's well i don't know i've been in a long-term relationship too but anyway you have to start relying on oxytocin and you know that's that's the uh, connection the hug that you know it's it's the more as long as i get my hug in the morning i'm good you know and that that's the sustainable neurochemical uh, along with serotonin that keeps a relationship going now this is uh sort of I, I don't know if this is the you know us as animal but what i'm trying to say here is well first of all molly would you go with that or would you say no i'm wrong No, I would agree that we find other ways, stimulating conversation, you know, finding little ways to have affection in different ways. But yeah, absolutely. But but, but the sense of I got to be in love, love, love. Oh, I think you're still early days in your relationship. Yeah, no. And every relationship I've had up to this point has been breaking up between the nine and 12 months when I wake up and I'm like, why am I with this person? Like, this is not exciting anymore. And so it's like playing the same video game and only getting to level three all the time. So then you play a new video game. So, right. It's taking it to the next level. And like that dopamine is this promise that never really delivers long term, right? And it's that here and now the serotonin and oxytocin and that companionate love and doing the work around that 
building a relationship that has so many more layers that I think is yeah. almost what we need to do with our recovery. Yes. And I, yes. So it, thank you. So, so let's just bring it to food. So in the, in the same way we have to, if, if I can use the word mature our relationship from the dopamine to a, uh, uh, I don't want to say a higher level, but just a, a more sustainable level. And we know that oxytocin and serotonin are very sustainable. And I can say, I'm older than both of you, that my desire to do, so how do I, I'm now, I'm going to be uh, 14 years sober and 14 years of sugar anyway, free, alcohol and sugar free. And then uh, grains, not so long, but anyway, so I'm in that middle year. If I didn't do what I'm doing now, like, you know, the service that I'm doing, that's what sustains me. It's not the money. Certainly we all know that this is not a money-making venture. It's the concept of service and uh, a feeling of uh, meaningfulness. And that has become more important to me than it did when I was younger. When I was younger, it was all about ambition and getting ahead and doing and seeing my my name and lights, you know, that idea. And now it's more, I just want to be part of the thing that's happening. And I'm sure as I get older, and I think this is true, although it's not true yet, even having my name attached to it is going to become less important. It's just going to be, I just want to be there. And I, I do think that that happens with human beings as, as they get older and that we need to do that with our food. And and the addicts, because we are so hungry, we're going to have to do it even more. So if you're struggling, we say this in the 12-step program, do service, help somebody. It might not be sponsoring, but it might be doing something that you're good at that is helpful, that, that will then sustain you. Yeah. yeah. I like to talk about, you know, first world problems and we have a lot of first world problems. And when we do things like volunteering at the animal shelter or yeah. a yeah. local, you know, soup kitchen or thrift store, whatever, where, you know, the donations, the sales are going toward a, a bigger cause, whatever it does. It takes us out of that really ego, our eye centered place that we can get into, right. Where it's yeah. like, Oh, I can't stop thinking about the food or the scale or the, what my body looks like or whatever it might be. And it really puts us back into, Oh, like there are not that those aren't real problems for us, but it puts us back into reality of like, there are bigger things going on in the world and people who need help. And if we're always stuck in I, mm -hmm. then we're a lot of energy is going inward. And that same energy could be used to benefit our community and build yeah. connection and be a part of something bigger than ourselves. So again, even if you're not a person who's into this idea of God or something like that, that can be the thing that's bigger than you. Yeah. The higher purpose. Yeah, for sure. The higher purpose. Yes. I'm a great believer in that. And and that's not just about food. When I'm, when I'm um, assessing somebody uh, for addiction, I always ask them in some way, you know, what their family situation is like, or what their uh, faith is like, or something, because I'm, or even if they're in school, do they have something that they aspire to that will give them something, not just ambition itself. Uh, and usually if they say yes, I, I think, okay, if they can hook back into that. I think that's very helpful and it becomes more and more important. And it's, and it's actually very rewarding in a way that I wouldn't have. And I don't know if it would have been as rewarding when I was younger or certainly not when I was in food, because it's always about the chase. This is not about the chase, it's an entirely different phenomena. And it's very filling. I'm also wondering, I know I've heard you mention before that throughout your journey, you have removed some things when it comes to food. I have been able to add some things in and I don't necessarily know that I was biologically addicted to them in the first place, mm -hmm. like grains. I think it was, or even like some fruit, I think I was fearful because of some of the messaging that was out there that these things were addictive for me. And then, you know, with the support 
support of others, I was able to like introduce them and like have a safety plan around it. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out it wasn't necessarily perhaps an addictive food for me, or maybe I'm at a level of recovery being over four years in where now they don't trigger me. And it actually turns out like, I don't really care for grains anyways, or rice, like I can eat them, I'll take it or leave it. So have you been able to reintroduce anything or do you know of people who are able after a certain, like I'm not talking sugar flour, right? But other maybe foods that, you know, whole foods, for example. Um, I would have to say the only place where I see that, and I'm not sure how useful this is, in terms of food itself, I've not experimented with that because I'm always, wherever I'm eating, I'm always very happy with that and I don't really want to go back. And uh, when I cut out grains, for me, it was actually more an issue of um, weight in that I, uh, once I hit menopause, eating the same food, well, menopause, post-menopause, the same food, I was starting to gain weight that I didn't want to gain. And I just found that that cut that, and I was very happy with what I was eating, so I didn't need to go back. But where I see that, you know, can I do or not, is with coffee and also with uh, sweeteners. Because every once in a while, I'll think it would be really nice to have just a little bit of sweetener in my coffee if it's, uh, you know, one of those horrible coffee places where it's not very good coffee. And so I'll have a little bit, and it doesn't, I'm not like, oh my God, I'm crazy. And I think, well, I probably could, but I, uh, I could, but I still like the idea of not re-inviting the sweet taste. So even though I've done it, it doesn't make me want to have more sweet. I, I don't want to play with it too much. I guess I'm doing what you did talk about. I'm using it with caution. And my caution is almost not at all, just because I, I am afraid of reawakening the sweet. That's an obvious one. It is sweet. But I've seen other people be able to do that. and But then they eventually want to get off. So it makes me think, is there a kind of uh, a leeway because I see it? And then they don't go all the way over, but they do end up getting off. So anyway, and then coffee is another one where people will stop and then they seem to be able to go on. I find that as long as I stick with decaf, I'm okay. I have gone off coffee completely, but I just get tired of just, just water. So I've reintroduced it and I seem to be okay. But, you know, I just got an espresso machine and, uh, you know, I'm drinking a little bit too much. It's decaf and it does make me think, okay, Vera, what are you doing here? But I think it's so good for people to hear this, that these, you know, we still have to just be mindful and that sometimes things, you know, start to, and this is the nature of addiction, right? And that... Of course, there's going to be times maybe for me, like since I don't weigh and measure, maybe it's a stressful time. I'm not sleeping well, na na na. There's a little bit more volume that happens. And then I just like, I'm like, oh, okay, I can pull out my scale and weigh and just check in and see what's going on. That Uh, these things just generically happen a bit in our recovery maintenance plan. It doesn't mean we are off the rails or like in the ditch, right? It's like when we were talking to Susan Pierce Thompson, she, when when she was talking about, what was it called? The re resume resume. Yeah. That concept of, we don't have to be perfect. It's this, this general sense of the boundaries might be stretched a bit, but you know, we, then we can recorrect. It's, It's like, you know, a constant recorrecting and you know, that seems to be plausible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, we just finished interviewing Erica Schulte on basically her new diagnostic assessment tool, which is going to be for ultra processed food addiction. And so we did ask her, you know, for the clients that show up and tell us, you know, they're addicted to fruit and they're addicted to grains, you know, this doesn't fit within your model. 
can you talk to us a little bit about that? And, and, you know, the conversation was interesting. She pretty much said like, it's really hard to show that an apple or uh, grains have the exact same, you know, can't be found in nature combination that ultra processed foods has that we do know then creates that tendency towards overconsumption. And so, yeah. you know, obviously she's leaning toward us putting forward ultra processed food addiction as right. the ICD name that we will go forward with. And I know you talked about food addiction before. What is your thoughts on like fruits and grains. Okay. Uh, if first. I can just say, okay. Yeah. And then I want to say something about the yeah. name. Yeah. But uh, my, my thought is that some of that is also uh, that some people are just more carb sensitive than others. And so, you know, some people can eat fruit and they can tolerate the amount of uh, sugar because it is within the concept of fiber and, and, and water and all that kind of stuff. But other people, it's still just too much and they'll have a sugar uh, spike or a, a hypoglycemic, hyperglycemic spike and then a crash. And that's entirely the individual so it could be as simple as that it's not addiction it's actually the hormonal because don't forget it's both it's the combination of both together so I, that's how i would explain that you know how carb sensitive are you and it does appear that some people are more so than others just are so there's that but getting back to what should we call uh, food addiction i like the term food addiction because it, it covers everything but i am very expedient and if the i see the dsm4 DSM-5, whatever it is, whatever agency will go with that, I will go with that too, because that at least gets us on the important map. And then we can, you know, be a subsection later on or some, you know, otherwise, you know, processed food, not otherwise specified or something like that. I'm good with that. Yeah. And I think actually processed food addiction is something that more people are willing to accept rather than the concept of food addiction, because they don't like that broad generic definition. They want something that's very specific and measurable. It makes sense. Yeah, I think that a lot of the pushback from the eating disorder world is because of that broad term. And Mm -hmm. I can see both sides of it. I can see your point, Vera, where when we say something like food addiction, it can encompass the behavioral piece of it that is unique to food addiction or to this specific outlet of addiction, right? Where there's a substance, but then there's also these behavioral things. But I can also see their point where if we're calling it food addiction, then people are going to be walking around saying, well, why am I not addicted to this broccoli or whatever it might be? So certainly I'm with you. I will, I will go with whatever it is that we can, that we can get accepted and then go from there for sure. Well, you can say, okay, you might not be addicted to the broccoli, but you might be addicted to two bags of broccoli because it's the hunger, it's the, the stress receptors then. So, yeah, so the there, we got an answer back all the time. Yeah, right. We always have something. So, so speaking of, so we talked about some maintenance and we talked about like things that might trigger individuals and some labels that we may or may not like, whether it be, you know, food addiction or ultra processed food addiction, whatever it might be. And this is, I want to talk to you about chronic relapsing because this is a label that I personally despise. I don't like this label and certainly I'm happy to have a conversation about it, but we want to know from you, you know, what do you suggest when somebody is in that chronic relapse cycle for, you know, do you have tools that might help that person? Well, you know, that's, that's such a hard one in just general addiction because the, you know, we talk about uh, general addiction of, you know, opioids, alcohol, cocaine, you know, what's the success rate, you know, 10%, 20%, it's not very high. And it's because of, uh, you know, chronic addiction or relapsing or relapse. 
and then the person loses hope and faith and then they stop trying and then that's the end of it. So, you know, if you monitor the people who are successful over time, it's the people who continually try, 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 try. They don't give up because that's the only way you're going to get out of this is by continually trying. But it does appear to be true that each time you have a relapse, it's harder because you build in to the... Uh, learned it's the learned helplessness model you know the operant conditioning part of addiction which is just as powerful as the biological like you know we got to talk about that too that addiction is not just a physiological response it's a it's an operant conditioning social psychological response and can you talk a bit about learned helplessness just so the audience can hear it so so the concept of learned helplessness is is um if i do something and i get a, a response to that then I've learned that, you know, this behavior leads to this response, so stimulus response. And if I do something and it doesn't lead to that, then, you know, it degrades that. So we call it degrading the connection. So that's that's good. Learned helplessness is when you do something and then something fails. And so then you now have made that same connection to do something and failure, not just positive. So you, you've now told yourself something that you didn't know before. And often it's... Uh, oh, I, I, I relapsed because somebody died or I relapsed because um, it was COVID, something. But you've built in a potential failure spot. And then if it's every, I relapse every three months or every nine months or and when I get my year medallion, then you've built in the year. And, and that part of the brain that learns is far, far, far more potent. It's under the radar. It's much more uh, powerful learning than, you know, learning of reading a book. So we built in the sense that I can fail. A very good example that I like to use is how to break that model. You're not going to like this though. But anyway, if my dog learns, I think this is somehow going to lead to learned helplessness. If my dog learns that if it barks loud enough, I'm going to give it a treat. So, you know, it might bark a couple of times and I don't pay attention to it. And then eventually it barks. So it just knows I just have to push Vera hard enough by barking loud enough. It's going to learn. It might be, I have to wait, you know, 60 barks or, or you know, three until nine o'clock at night or something like that. I mean, it's all in, learned without intellect because a dog can learn it. Like apparently hummingbirds learn it like you don't have to be intelligent it's just it's part of our learned behavior but a dog will never ever ever bark at a at a fridge door even though all the food is in the fridge because the fridge will never open the door so there is never learned helplessness because it's always shut but if for some reason that door swung open because the fridge wasn't closed properly now the dog knows that fridge might or the moment Vera gets near the fridge and then I bark, then I'll get it. So now you've learned at uh, three months I get bored and then eventually when I'm bored enough, I will use, then it's very hard to combat that learning. That's basically what I'm talking about. So now you're going to have to degrade that connection by, this is the part that people don't like, never giving in. <laughs> it's the only way to degrade it. If you continually support that, you're continually supporting this I don't really like the word learned helplessness, but failure point. There is a crack, and now you'll learn where that crack is. And, and the animal part of us will sniff it out before we even realize it. You know what it's, it is? It can be a cue. It can be anxiety. I don't even know it's anxiety. I just know it's a feeling in my stomach. This is a heaviness in my shoulders. That has led me to pick up. So now I feel it, and without even thinking of it, I'm picking it up. Okay, done. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's like, it's Pavlov's dog all over again, right? Yes, so it's just it the is. it's just operant conditioning, like you were saying, and learned condition, uh, learned helplessness, you know. And I think the reason why I don't like the term chronic relapser is because I yeah. feel like it is 
first and foremost, it's not even a clinical term. I don't even know where it came from, but I feel like it's become weaponized. So I end up working with clients who will say it very in a, sometimes they will come and say, listen, I've been told I'm a chronic relapser and there's, you know, basically no hope for me or somebody's been very angry with them when they've used that term or they use it so flippantly, like, well, this is just my lot in life. And I just don't believe that. I just, I, I, I'm sorry guys, but I am in a you know, I'm in the position or the, the field that I'm in because I do believe people can change and that that's possible. And I see people do it every day. And so I just, I don't like that term when we're talking about a, a chronic and progressive disease, you know, would we say, would we tell somebody with cancer, Oh, you're just a chronic relapser. Hmm. I don't think that we would do that. And maybe, maybe that does happen. Maybe I'm very naive to how it works during cancer treatment, but we don't do that in other areas of medicine. Why are we doing that with these individuals? And then these individuals wear this label. And if I know anything about labels, we get stuck in them, right? It's very easy to put on that, that hat. And then, well, that's just it. Like I'll do this for a while, but chances are I'll be right back in the gutter, you know, or whatever. I hear that a lot too. Like I'm a gutter addict or whatever. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay. So when we speak these things, folks, we become, we live them, right? We are putting it out into the universe and we are putting energy toward that. And why, why can we not just take a step back for just a moment and remember this is a chronic and progressive disease that these returns to use will happen And sometimes it has to happen. Vera, you just even said it, right? Like sometimes it has to happen many times over a long period of time before we do get it. But people do get it. And not everybody gets it. There are, I mean, the return to use or the relapse rate is very similar to other chronic progressive diseases, as we know. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. We should call it a chronic never giver upper because you're always (laughs) coming back, right? I feel like that's a much more positive way to frame it. And because again, it's putting the blame back on the individual for having a disease. And that is so wrong. It's a moral, it's a moral stand. So it would be better just to say it's a person with a lot of failure points now or failure breaks, and they are going to have to take extra care on all of those spots. It's just going to mean more work, but it doesn't mean uh, they can still do it. Right. I mean, would we have said to Thomas Edison, you're a chronic relapser or a chronic failure because you tried a thousand times. I don't know how many times he tried for the light bulb, but you know what I mean? Like any sort of inventor or forward thinking person, if we had shown up and said that, you know, would we have the advancement that we have today instead, like Clarissa said, like if we just encourage, like what it was information, what did you learn? You know, almost like Marty learners. Well, in fact, absolutely. Marty learners kind of tagline, right? So what now what? So that happened. Now, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. That's good. And most, if you speak with people who have long-term sobriety, you know, back-to-back long-term sobriety, they will have a long, long, most of them have a very long history of having tried and failed and tried and failed. So, you know, there are many of us who have done it. Yeah. And I I can even see in my own personal story, like I had tried so many times with alcohol. I just didn't know that food was part of that story. But so when food was the thing, I was already just ready to rock and roll, right? Because I'd done so many, you know, try agains with alcohol that, you know, that was just the last missing piece, but that if I didn't keep fighting, or that, I wouldn't be here today. And that everyone has that opportunity if they just keep showing up and just keep trying. 
Yes, that's right. And so our moral stand that, that you've been describing is a real deterrent. So we have to stop doing that for sure. Yeah. I'm also wondering if you can talk a bit about, you know, eating disorders versus food addiction. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? We do get some pushback sometimes in people saying all food or all eating disorders are food addiction. And, you know, clinically, I would say that they fall on different spectrums and people can have both, but I just wondered perhaps what your take would be on Um, that. Well, you know, I am convinced by the spectrum analogy, but I do think that there is a unique condition of eating disorder because I've seen it at Renaissance. It's just an intuitive sense because we don't have a very good tool. So we often have to, even though we try our best to, to separate it out by using the Yale food inventory it's often just by the gut. This person is not a food addict. They're something else. And it's probably an eating disorder. But I have to say that I don't think there's as many of them out there as there are food addicts. I think we far outnumber. And I do think it's possible that an eating disorder person can morph into, especially the way that we've been treating people with eating disorders by giving them high, you know, they lose a lot of weight and then giving them high fat, sugary concoctions, which when they're at their most vulnerable can disarray the whole hormonal neurochemical balance so that now we've given them another condition on top of. But I think because there's so much more food addiction. That's my impression. And what, what do we say that there are, there's between five and 10% of the population are eating disorder. I think it's more closer to 5%. I think that there's a lot of people who are misdiagnosed that are truly food addicts, but I do think that there is a, a distinct, there is an entity of eating disorder, but it's not as big as food addiction. Yeah. I think we see clinically similar where, you know, there is this spectrum and a lot of not a lot. Well, I think so. I think Clarissa and I attract a certain clientele where they show up and they say, I've got, you know, I spent years in bulimia. I spent years in anorexia. I spent years in binge eating, whatever it might be. And now, you know, they're showing up saying, but I'm pretty sure it's food addiction. And not to say that they're wrong, because obviously, you know, we can do some assessment and figure out if there is a chemical dependency going on to these specific foods. Right. And like you said, there's there are some screens that we can do, but it is, it's more of an intuitive. It's like getting a really good history and finding out yeah. is their addiction, other addiction outlets showing up for them. Is there other addiction in their family? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing, right. Really using David Wiss's idea of like separating signal from noise and that kind of thing, you know, but I think that I don't know if I believe that food addiction outnumbers eating disorders. I don't know that one is bigger than the other. I, if we go along with that in eating disorders, because I believe this, I believe that there is an addiction component in eating disorders themselves, because I think we can become addicted to that, right? There's still yeah. dopamine and serotonin, right? All of that. Yeah, yeah. I would, and based on that assumption, I guess, I would mm-hmm. assume that they're similar, right? That they're similar numbers, the same as alcohol and opioids and that kind of thing. I mean, which again, those numbers are growing. We know that those numbers are growing. The pandemic has caused all kinds of havoc to, to occur with the growing number of addiction, but I don't know. I mean, and not that, not that there's anything, I mean, certainly we don't have to debate that Vera there. I'm not trying to like cause a debate, but I just, I do question that like our, I don't want to cause unnecessary fear that the vast majority of people, you know, or a good portion of people are food addicts. I think that, you know, 
if we were to take these hyper palatable foods away from people, I think that they would meet criteria for withdrawal intolerance, but we know it takes more than that these days, right? To really meet the criteria for substance use disorder. But do I think that the vast majority of people would have a level of tolerance and absolutely experience withdrawal if we took those things away? You bet. Yeah. But let me just ask you, it sounds to me like you're saying that you believe that there's a spectrum, that that there's an addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that, is, that yeah. is really my perspective as well. I think yeah. we on that level. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I think we do too. And I think if we were able to treat some of these eating disorders earlier on, that they may not progress yeah. into yeah. what it becomes with food addiction, because and... certainly the individuals I work with that just start with bulimia at younger ages, it's not just the hyperpalatable foods that no. they're throwing up, but near the end, it's yeah. Only that, yeah, right. right? Where it's it's completely comorbid food addiction. Yeah. And what if we treated eating disorders different in that we don't ask somebody to eat the hyper palatable food? Exactly. Exactly. Right? That, yes. Like yes. demand that they demand eat that. Them. It's a yes. forced thing. And yes. what yes. if we treated it differently? Would that be a level of prevention for yeah. right this yeah, I, other I, yes, I end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Because sure. I, I do struggle still with the idea that there's no good, the idea in the like eating disorder world that there's no good or bad foods that, you know, if you want the donut for breakfast, have the donut for breakfast. I just, that to me, nutrient wise does not make healthy sense. But mm-hmm. again, you know, I'm a food addict, so... <laughs> Who knows, right? And from I a think, moral standpoint, I think you're yeah, right. From a more again, if we're going back to that moral standpoint, yeah, I agree. However, early in my anorexia, the idea I was so fat phobic and so afraid of these foods that the idea of eating a donut for breakfast, I just that would be terrifying. Not because of the reason I have now, which is I just know it's addictive. It was just like the whole concept, and so. I still don't know that that exposure therapy is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could, but we could use something like eggs and avocado. Right, right. Avocado would have been scary to me at that point. <laughs> right, but it would have been, but it would have been a better option for your brain and the rest and, of your body. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, it's there is something about the addictive impulses in uh, eating disorders too. Like just by virtue, and this is partly why I'm I'm very hesitant about intermittent fasting. That you know, just there's something addictive about not eating too, and there's no food involved there, and it's not because they're looking or they're afraid of the avocado or the donut. They just don't want to eat, and they like that feeling, even though it's painful. It's not painful, and it's actually kind of exciting. And yeah, I really it's a high. Yeah, it's a high. Yeah, and I do for sure. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. And I think the other thing we really wanted to touch on today was your thoughts on the difference between 12 step and actual addiction treatment. And when it comes to food addiction, what is the difference? Okay. So, you know, here's the thing. When we say 12 step, we know probably that the most successful model of 12 step is AA. And then probably CA is pretty known to be successful. I guess NA too. You know, so these are, these are, uh, you know, packaged programs that are, you know, from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s that have uh, all the tools that we use in a particular package. And that is offensive to many people and to other people, they just take what they leave and want and leave the rest. And it, I, it's, it's great. Now, the problem with food is that there are not just 
two, two or three strong groups. There's like 10, there's 12. And they're not very big, nothing like AA or CA. They're small and fractioned and within. And it, so it makes what could otherwise be a great idea, like we see in the uh, larger addiction world, it's very hard to find a similar offering in the food world. It's food addiction, although it's been around a long time, the only place that we see a big group that has been around a long time is OA, um, Overeaters Anonymous, and they don't have any uh, real take on. They actually think it's an eating addiction, not a specific food. So in a way, they're not really helpful. But anyway, so that's unfortunate. And I wish there was one group that was as strong as OA that looked at food as an addiction in the way that we do so that I could make an easy comparison. So because of that, I like 12-step because it's full of community. It's free. It has all the tools that you could ever want built into the 12 steps. Um, so there it is. But we don't really have a great offering in the food world. There are some, but they're, you know, like, should I give, I'll mention some names because people. Are yeah, for sure. Just to be helpful to people yeah, who so, might you know, Google. So there's Overeaters Anonymous, which I said, and, and Overeaters Anonymous is, you know, great because it's big, lots of people, but it doesn't, it doesn't give you a specific food plan. And it doesn't really, they want you to figure out your own food plan. And it's really more about just not eating compulsively, whatever way that would look. So it's just not very clear, but it's big and it's supportive and that's good. And then we have Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. I think that's the next biggest one. And that one has a very specific food plan and food behaviors, like some of which involves weighing and measuring. And it's a fairly strong group, but it's not very big and you, it can be quite fractioned. You have to basically find the right group and the right sponsor. And you're less likely to do that because it's not as big. So those are those two. And then there's another group, Gray Sheeters Anonymous, which uh, is as old as, um, uh, no, it's not as old as OA, but it comes from OA. They all come from OA that has its own specific food plan as well and specific behaviors that are monitored. And then we have littler groups like the um, Overeaters, How Overeaters, A Vision for You. They're all versions of trying to find a food plan as well. But like I said, small and not that useful. So what that means is that we may have to look at the secular uh, world, which includes people like you, Clarissa and Molly. And I'm so pleased that you guys exist because we don't have a strong 12-step model and you are forging the way for secular, like therapy, coaching, so that you provide, I'm assuming you provide a food plan or advice on, as well as all sorts of tools. And you're also finding a way through your meetings with the food addiction professional group to have a sort of a common ground. So it's not just one person here speaking, you know, that we're trying to find it. Like this is happening right now. And it's, it's absolutely thrilling to see that happening because food addicts need help. And uh, in the world out there where there is a lot of therapy and a lot of uh, advice and diets, they're not talking about us. They're not talking about the food we need to eat and the tools we need to use. So it's, we're finally filling a hole or a deficit that's been there that's now starting to be filled by you and by people that are, are being trained right now. But it's a work in progress right now. So I think it's essential. It's exciting. And, you know, we are agreeing on some central tenants. And then as long as we keep open, I think we're doing the right thing. If I can just toot our horn, that this podcast is a really good way to synthesize because we need to have that commonality so that we're all talking the same language and at least agreeing on some central points. You know, their addiction does exist. 
probably sugar is number one, probably flour is another one, maybe not grains for some people and yes to others. As long as we have agreements like that, you know, maybe in 10 years from now, we'll actually have a uh, unified, I want to call it secular as compared to the uh, 12-step model, which is not. And that has only been unified through, you know, time. And it hasn't been very unified there. Yeah. I mean, I think that I love that you laid it out that yes, the peer support, whether it be 12 step or something like smart recovery or something along those lines is peer to peer. And you laid that out perfectly. It's free. There are lots of tools. There's, you know, often many meetings you can find a sponsor, you know, these days and age, you know, that we're, we're um, online for a lot of it, or it's an option. If you don't have a local, you know, sugar carb addicts, anonymous SCAA, I believe is just full is only online. I don't know that they have any in-person meetings, that kind of thing, you know, so there, you have lots of options. Like Vera was saying, there are many out there, you know, and then the difference for me being with treatment is that. I think that a lot of what those programs do is a really is great for sure. But then the clients that come to me for treatment that seem right. So I think that there are the people who can go to just 12 step and they can do it with just 12 step. Just like, I think there are people who can stop using a substance and just be done with it. Right. Like maybe they do meet criteria for substance use disorder. And I think it's a statistic of like 20%. I want to say that's accurate. 20% of people who meet criteria for substance use disorder can just put it down and walk away on their own, whatever that means for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so you, you've got to believe that some of those 20% are probably in that 12 step area, but then the people who come to treatment are really the ones who need individualization, right? And they need it from a professional who is up to date yes. on the latest research who can use techniques and tools that that's not going to show up in a peer support group. That's not going to right because the idea with a peer support group is, you know, when this thing happens to me, this is what I do. Or a sponsor is giving direction. And the expectation is, is that you would take, you would follow sponsor direction, which is fantastic. And then just the difference with treatment is like, it's like that level up it's individualized. It it's hopefully with somebody who can give you direction. Like because I, because of my background, because of Clarissa and her background, I won't speak fully for you, Clarissa, I apologize, but we can show up and say like, listen, this, you've got some real mental health stuff going on. You need a professional to help you with that. Let me help you with that professional. You know, we can speak about quote unquote, like outside issues, that kind of thing. And so if anybody is listening and they're wondering again, what are those differences? I think those are some of the differences too. Now I love, I love when my clients have a community, especially a 12 step community. I love when they have a sponsor because I get to ask things like, well, what does your sponsor say? And they're like, my sponsor. Well, I haven't told my sponsor. I'm like, why are you showing up to this meeting telling me a week later when you have had a whole week of connect, you know, opportunity to speak to your sponsor and what does your sponsor have to say? And they're like, well, we'll have to get back to you on that. You know, so it's really nice to have that relationship, whether or not I have a relationship with the spot. I don't, I mean, for the most, I don't think that's ever happened except for like in cases where I've had to, you know, testify in court or something, but you know, it's nice to have, it's nice when people do have that. I don't know, Clarissa, what, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent. I think that the, Again, you just have to be mindful and be careful about the community that you pick and make sure that it is serving you because there is also people in some of these 12-step programs that are not necessarily well. And I have had clients experience some lateral violence within them, only being that, you know, we give people power 
as a sponsor and, you know, you just need to make sure that you feel you're being treated appropriately. And that would be my only word of caution because I have had, you know, people say I'm doing, they keep telling me I'm doing it wrong and I forgot to call and now they've started me back at day one. And, and, you know, these these are punitive measures that are not recovery and that, Unfortunately, yes. there are so there, that's part of the in the food addiction group. There is a lot of that, unfortunately. But I, I, I want to just give the other side of that that I have had the experience of seeing many people, not just not not certainly not only in food addiction. That's just part of it. Many therapists who are questionable, and you know, absolutely. I just go, oh my god, I can't believe this person is a therapist, and it scares me. Or, or I hear what they say. So it, I mean, yes, you're right. Anybody can be in a twelve step group. Absolutely, you have to be careful about that. Absolutely, but don't be thinking that it's you know just because no. they're professional. No, you you can no. get a and be a bonkers. And that's just it, Vera. Like you were saying, like you're so happy that there are all these coaches out there now too. And, and I think that's something to be cautious of too, you know, that number one, not everybody is a good fit for everybody. You know, number two, really do your research and figure out what you want. If you come from a 12 step background and you want a coach who has that 12 step background, then find that coach. If you have experience, like Clarissa said, that lateral violence, which plenty of clients of mine have as well, and that is going to be very activating for you, find somebody who does not practice in that way. Clarissa and I are kind of unique in the field because we are clinicians. We are licensed in our respective places that we live, that we have to adhere to ethics boards and we have to maintain continuing education. You know, there are benefits to that kind of level of coaching that there's a gamut out there and do your research just like with 12 step, do your research with the, you know, the professionals out there as well. And I think that's, I think that's just a nice little thing to like put out there on blast because I don't think enough people know that you can like have these 30 minute consultations, 15 minute consultations, and it can be you, the listener also interviewing us, the person on the other end of the line. Yeah. Make sure it's a good fit and don't feel pressured to make a decision right then and there. I tell everyone that I do a consultation with sleep on it, give yourself 24 hours, check in with your significant other, check in with, you know, a trusted other before you make a decision to work with me. My feelings are not going to be hurt. I rather you do something like that. And I think the same could be said for any of these programs and and before you pick a sponsor or whomever. Yeah. And that's uh, partly, you know, we have these free groups that people can actually get to know the the sponsor and the other people that it's a great way to, uh, you know, find out if you're a great fit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shop around because there's so many and it's really, it's all about who you feel like you could be your most authentic self with at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Like Mm -hmm. you don't, you're not showing up to please us, right? You're showing up, we're showing up to just help guide you. And that's, and if you feel comfortable, then that's, that's the goal. And I guess our last question, Vera, is what is piquing your interest right now in the food addiction world? Is there anything? Well, yes. Okay. So I'm interested in a couple of things. As we learn more about the whole endocannabinoid system, I'm not a fan of the whole marijuana approval thing. There is, however, uh, I guess there's still a but in there, the opportunity now to learn more about our own endocannabinoid uh, system. And the more I learn about that, the more I realize that what we've been attributing to, I think it's mainly endorphins, is actually an endocannabinoid overlap. And so what are we learning? And we know that there's something about endocannabinoids and appetite, because when you smoke a joint, you want to eat. 
you got the munchies. And so what's going on there? So I'm really interested in that. I'm not interested in the research because it's so technical or it's so, hey, this stuff is great. And let me prove to you why it's going to cure cancer. I'd like to find some really good solid research that, and that's a lot of studying stuff is ferreting out what, what research is worthy of going through the whole uh, abstract and you know, all that stuff. So anyway, that's sort of where I'm interested. I'm also interested in um, more on the oxytocin connection, sort of what else is going on? Because I know that the dopamine, serotonin, and it's, it's only the, I don't want to say it's only the, it, it's a major piece, but there's more, it's more complicated than that. And I think that once we get more of that, we're going to start understanding more about why food addiction is so complex. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at. Awesome. So exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down and like chatting with us today, Vera. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.